We're back in Daniel tonight. We're going to begin at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. If you have a Bible or a device with the Bible app on it, I invite you to follow along with us. Daniel 7 and verse 9. The number one television show in syndication is, anybody know? Andy not Andy Griffith. Anybody know? Seinfeld. Not Seinfeld. Not I Love Lucy. Friends. Not Friends. Judge Judy. <laughs> This is for real. It's even, I even checked Nielsen's ratings today to see if it's still, uh, and it is. Judge Judy, in fact, has been the top of the list of most watched syndicated show by a wide margin for five years in a row. In 2018, second place overall went to Dr. Phil, and coming in at number three was a show called Hot Bench that I've never heard of, which is another daytime courtroom show created by the lady, Judge Judy herself. So she gets number one and number three. Uh, Judge Judy, the People's Court, Judge Joe Brown, Judge Faith. Seems that a lot of folks can't get enough of courtroom drama during the middle of the day. And you know what? If that's you, God bless you. And this passage is for you tonight because it's going to be right up your alley. In our text this evening, the heavenly court comes to order and the judge of all makes his verdict. But, you know, this is no small claims court case. You know, that's what's always funny about these, uh, the people's court and Judge Judy. I mean, the, 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 the arguments and the cases are always so petty, right? They're just arguing over such sad little things. But this is not a small claims court case. This isn't some petty dispute between roommates. What we're going to see here is God passing judgment and carrying out the sentence for the final godless world empire ruled by the Antichrist. And then finally, the Lord Jesus will be established as the king over all the earth on his throne in Jerusalem, whose kingdom will never end. So a good story. It's going to be a great episode uh, in the courtroom tonight. Now, when we left off last time, Daniel had just seen a vision of four destructive and grotesque beasts that roamed the earth. We learned that they uh, are four world empires spanning from Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar all the way to a revived Roman Empire under the Antichrist. In between those two, there would be Medo-Persia and Greece and the first Roman Empire. And this is exactly how history has unfolded, just as the Bible said. Now, we find ourselves tonight in the gap between the Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire. That is the era that we live in here in 2019. The distinction between the first Roman Empire that we know about from history books and the revived Roman Empire that the Bible explains is symbolized back in chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's vision through the legs of iron that are then followed by feet of iron mixed with clay. Uh, the same empire but in two distinct forms. In this vision tonight we have seen the terrible beast and then the distinct emergence of the uh, little horn, right? Last time we saw that. The Antichrist. He's speaking pompous, blasphemous words against the Most High. And though Rome rose up and overtook Greece 2,000 years ago, a second iteration of Rome is still on its way. In verses 1 through 8, Daniel's vision was like a horror movie. It was terrible. All these terrible beasts going around devouring stuff. In verse 9, he suddenly changes the channel, as it were, to a courtroom drama. He's no longer looking down on things on the earth. He's now looking up into heaven, and that's where we pick up this evening, starting in verse 9. Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. So Daniel sees a person and a throne. The person is identified as the Ancient of Days. Man, one of the great titles of God. Uh, But it's only used three times in the whole Bible, and all of them are found in this chapter. So this all belongs to Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days. The whiteness of his hair and his clothing speak to us of this figure's absolute purity and the magnificent, mature wisdom associated with his timeless existence. And so the question then, of course, arises, well, who is this? We don't want to just take these things for granted. When we're reading the Bible, we should read slowly, carefully, on purpose. So who is this? Now, the Mormons teach that the Ancient of Days is Adam, who they say is the same as Michael the Archangel. They're all mixed up, of course. You find that lie in Doctrines and Covenants, one of their uh, books. Now, reading the Bible, it's plain and it's obvious that Daniel is seeing God, but commentators, good commentators, will disagree over whether the Ancient of Days is a name for God the Father or a name for God the Son. Now, some will point to verse 22 of this chapter. We're not going to get there tonight. We'll get there in subsequent weeks. But some will point to verse 22, which seems to reference the arrival of the Ancient of Days to deliver the saints from the Antichrist. And then they see here his description, and they say, well, this description of the white garments reminds us of the transfiguration. Therefore, they conclude that the Ancient of Days must be Jesus, right? But then in our verses tonight, we're going to see a different figure, a second figure called the Son of Man. Now, Jesus specifically claimed to be the Son of Man a bunch of times. And he's going to be, in this passage, standing before the Ancient of Days who's on his throne. And so other good commentators will say, well, the Ancient of Days must be God the Father. Now, while this debate is important and interesting, this sort of overlap makes sense, right? Because our God is a trinity, one God, three persons. Listen, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Right? So it's not that there's a problem in the revelation. It's that our ability to comprehend the Trinity is somewhat limited. And so I understand what guys say. Well, look, it says the Ancient of Days arrives. So that must be Jesus. Well, here it says the Son of Man stands before the Ancient of Days. Well, we just always remember the Bible reveals that God is a triunity. One God, three persons. Now we're told that his throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. In the visions of heaven, the throne of God is very prominent. The Apostle John especially gives a lot of attention to it in the opening chapters of Revelation. Its flames speak to us here of God's consuming holy judgment. In Psalm 97, we are told that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, God is love, but his love does not overlook sin. It doesn't wink at sin. It doesn't sweep sin under the rug. Rather, sin must face the wrath of God one way or another. Every sin that's ever been committed must face the wrath of God one way or another. Now, if you are in Christ, then Paul says in Romans 5 that you are therefore justified by the blood of Jesus and you are saved from the wrath of God. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, the wrath of God remains on you, the Bible says. And that wrath will rightly consume you in fiery judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. It's very clear. The references to fire and wheels here also draws our thoughts to what you read in Ezekiel, specifically in chapters 1 and 10. We see wheels like this in chapter 1. And multiple times in Ezekiel's book, the Lord speaks to his prophet about, quote, the fire of my wrath. 
And so uh, the connection to Ezekiel here is a good opportunity for us to remind ourselves that these scriptures, especially prophetic portions of scripture, they don't live in isolation from one another, right? Uh, these things are a collection. They are a whole. You know, we think about, there, there's sometimes shows on television that they call either anthology shows or you think of a show like The Twilight Zone. Each episode was kind of individual, right? You could jump in in the middle of the season of The Twilight Zone, watch one episode, and you're really not behind. Well, that's not how it works here. The Bible isn't just a, a, a separate, you know, group of, of isolated stories or isolated scriptures. That's not it at all. They are connected. They live with one another. These few verses that we're reading tonight in Daniel 7 connect either directly or indirectly to Ezekiel, to Revelation, to 1 Corinthians, to Thessalonians, to the Psalms, to Isaiah, to Acts, to Exodus. And that's why we want to study the whole Bible as God's people, right? Because it's all necessary for us. It's all connected. It's a whole revelation. They're not standalone stories. They're not just, you know, individual ideas. When we see this passage, it should immediately draw our attention to these other things that we've read before. Things, passages like Revelation chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 20. If you're familiar with those passages or those areas or passages like Ezekiel 1, even if you've read those only a couple of times, something will flash in your mind. Hey, I think I've read something like this before. Fiery wheels, where have I read that before? Well, you've read it in Ezekiel. A great host standing before the throne in heaven. Where have I read that before? Well, let's go to Revelation 4 and 5. The opening of books. I'm spoiling our study tonight, but okay, well, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. And all of these other things that God has spoken about in his word, it's all connected and built together. And so we want to be people who are going through the book all together. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So the fire streamed out. This is not some figurehead king. You know, there's still a few kings and queens left on the earth. Almost none of them can do anything. They don't have any real power. They're figureheads, right? The queen of England can't really declare war on anybody and say, go conquer some island somewhere and, uh, you know, for my name. She's a figurehead. Uh, or you think about court orders. A lot of times court orders will be ignored every now and then. Presidents, you know, make the news because they're ignoring court orders of, in one way or another. Or you hear about celebrities violating different, you know, things that happen in court. People that you know or that we, you know, hear about here locally, they'll disregard custody rulings, for examples, or restraining orders, those sorts of things. But you know what? Not in this court. That's not that kind of king, and this is not that kind of court. His orders happen. And the fire of God's wrath goes out and his judgment cannot be denied. His is a pure and absolute power. It's not confined to one jurisdiction or one location. It's over all of heaven and all of the earth. He is the ruler and the judge of all. And before this judge, before the Ancient of Days, stands an innumerable host, at least a hundred million of angels and saints who are thronging together in his presence to hear him and to worship him and to celebrate him. That's the image we're seeing here. Now, I'd have us note this. While we see the raw, unmatched power of God's holiness and judgment and wrath pouring out from his throne in fierceness and fury, notice that the people before the throne, they are not afraid. And I think that's really important because you know what? They're not afraid. They are in awe. 
You know, if a river of fire started oozing out from the stage right now, probably none of us would stay in our seats, right? I think all of us, myself first of all, would just turn heel and run, right? But in the Bible, we see, and one day we are going to see in person as Christians, that this God is not one to run away from. He is altogether right. He is altogether true. He is altogether wise. He is altogether powerful. And this God has invited us into his presence. He says, yeah, come be in my presence. Have fellowship with me. Be close to me. And he's invited us in not only to worship his glory, and he is glorious, but he then says, I've invited you in to not only worship me, but be glorified by me. This is an amazing God. And so I just love that the people in the, in the auditorium, as it were, the people in this courtroom, they're not afraid. They love this God. They acknowledge the awesomeness of this God. And his judgment and his wrath is going out, but they have nothing to fear from their Savior. Now, here we're told that the books were opened. A couple of things here. First of all, we've taken a break, so it's not fresh in our minds. But remember what immediately preceded all of this. Allow your eyes to travel upward on the page if you need to. These gruesome beasts were devouring the world in great slaughter. Who could stand before the lion or the bear or the leopard, let alone the fourth beast? It just talked about how the fourth beast just ground everything into dust and powder. Nothing could stand against him, right? Too terrible to describe. And yet in heaven, what do we notice? There's no rush. There's no wringing of the hands. What are we going to do? There's no recklessness here at all. God isn't surprised or caught off guard by anything that's happening in human history. He's not caught by surprise or caught off guard by anything that's happening in this world right now, and that includes everything that's going on in your life and my life. And that's a very comforting thought if you're a Christian here tonight. God is not caught off guard. He knows, and he has intentions for you, and he has power for your life, and he is able to do uh, far above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Now, we're told that the books were opened. Heaven has a library. I don't know if I really ever think about that. And, you know, we're not given so much detail about heaven. We're given a lot of, a lot of information in Revelation and passages like this. Paul talks about a visit to heaven a little bit. But, you know, you think about this. Well, there's books in heaven. And we're going to find out there's a bunch of books in heaven. I mean, so there's a library in heaven. I just think it's great to just think about that and look forward to the fact that, you know, the, the heaven that we're going to, the place that Jesus Christ is preparing for us, his people, it's not some desolate, desolate, gross, boring place. It's so much better than anything we could ever ask or imagine here. But there's a library in heaven, and it's a pretty extensive one. Of course, we know that there's the Lamb's Book of Life. We learned that first all the way back in the book of Exodus. There's the book of the living in Psalm 69, the book of remembrance in Malachi 3.16. In Psalm 56, it says God records our tears in a book. In Revelation 20, we're told that there are multiple books which record the deeds of human beings. And in Psalm 139, we read this, every day of my life was recorded in your book. That's a, that's a great thing. Now, in our text tonight, these books most likely refer to those books we see in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment. Those whose names are not found in the book of life stand before the Lord at his great right throne judgment. And not being found in the Lamb's book of life means that they have to be judged and the wrath of God will fall on them. And so it says in Revelation 
that the books are opened and the dead are judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So very important books, very significant books. Verse 11 says this, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So Daniel looks down to earth once more. All the while, the horn has been boasting and blaspheming against this God of heaven, against the ancient of days. You know, it's funny, when you read the first eight verses, we remember from last time we were in this passage, the beasts, they're no small thing, right? And when you're reading the first eight verses before you get to verses 9 through 14, man, these beasts are, and the horn, they're alarming, they are frightful, they are terrible to behold. And now think about this little horn on the little head of this beast in light of the magnificent scene that has just been set before us of the Ancient of Days on his throne before 10,000 times 10,000 with the fire of his power and his wrath and his judgment and his goodness and his glory going out before him. Man, all of a sudden, uh, it shows the extreme littleness of this horn compared to the exceeding greatness of our God. Now, this Antichrist, who will do so many things and cause so much trouble and have so much power in one sense, he's just an ugly little nothing compared to the Lord. Uh, and, and it's a great, great comparison. Remember, one of the great themes of the book of Daniel is to compare the power of God with the power of sin, right? The power of man's kingdom versus the power of God's kingdom, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, whether it's a fiery furnace, a lion's den, whether it's a little horn, we see the power of God and that nothing can stop it and how great and glorious God is. Now, Daniel saw the whole beast, including the little horn, slain suddenly. In a moment, the whole thing is destroyed by the fire that proceeds from the throne. He's just thrown right on in. Now remember, these beasts symbolized world empires. This fourth beast is a revived Roman Empire ruled by the man of sin. When the Lord puts him down, it will be sudden and immediate. You can read how it will happen at the end of Revelation chapter 19. Verse 12 of our text. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now commentators will split over whether this verse is referring to the way that each of the previous beasts were overcome historically or if it's speaking of a yet future event. Some feel that, hey, this is speaking about something that's going to happen at the end of human history. Others feel that, no, what Daniel is doing is, is he is highlighting the sudden destruction of the fourth empire and that little horn. Uh, there's no reason why it can't be elements of both because it's true when Babylon was dominated by Medo-Persia, the dominion of Babylon was taken, right? No more Babylonian king, but the people and the culture survived for a while, right? When the Persians came in, they didn't wipe everybody out. They didn't burn down the city to the ground. They came in and they said, hey, we're in charge now. And everybody said, that's fine with us. And then they went forward. And so that culture and that group of people sort of lived on for a while, even though the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar's throne, as it were, was taken away. And the same thing happened. It was true for Persia when Greece came and same for Greece when Rome came. Rome based a lot of their ideas and a lot of their practices on what Greece had done. But here when the last beast is destroyed, that is it. There's no leftover influence of the re revived Roman Empire going into the kingdom. Uh, however, the Bible does indicate 
that the lives, quote unquote, of other nations will continue in some sense even during the millennial kingdom. We're told that after the thousand years, Satan will go out uh, to, quote, deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So there will be some sort of national distinction in the millennial kingdom on the earth. Even in eternity after the millennial kingdom, there remains some sort of distinction uh, in heaven, at least between Jews and non-Jews. And it would seem from Revelation 21, verse 24, that there will be some sort of national identity. I don't know what that means. I don't know how that's going to work. But if you turn to Revelation 21, 24, you're going to find a reference to nations and kings. And we're not talking about the tribulation, and it's not talking about the millennial kingdom. It's talking about eternity in the new Jerusalem. So, interesting. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Back to heaven now. Glad to be back. Daniel sees a new figure, the Son of Man. Now, this is a title Jesus very often loved to use of himself. He definitely claimed to be this person. He's not just saying, yeah, 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 I'm a son of man. And people say, well, you know, Ezekiel's called son of man. Jesus never claimed to be God. No, Jesus claimed to be this person from Daniel 7, 13. In fact, at his trial before the high priest on the night of his, before his crucifixion, he refers to this passage. They say, hey, are you the chosen one? Are you the Christ? And he says, you're going to see me, the son of man, coming with the clouds. And that's when the high priest like tears his clothes and he says, hey, this dude says he's God. He says he's the Messiah. That's all we need to hear. And so <clears throat> Jesus definitely claimed to be this person. Now John, the apostle, further identifies this figure as Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. He says that the one who was pierced and washed us with his own blood is coming with the clouds. And John goes on to say that he, this person, is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Almighty. So this figure, the Son of Man, who Jesus claimed to be, is absolutely God. And yet he's called the Son of Man. And so we know this as believers, but it's great to be reminded the Bible clearly reveals Jesus was the, and is the God-man. He came in his incarnation as the God-man. He remains as the God-man throughout uh, all of eternity. He's fully God, fully human. He alone is able to bridge the gap between mankind and the Father. The Savior, the Messiah, has to be God and he has to be man. There's no other way to deal with the problem of sin in the light of the perfection of heaven. There's no other system, no other scheme, no other avenue. Jesus is the only way because there's only one God-man, and that's Jesus Christ. He has to be God. He has to be man. There's no way around it. Now, verse 14 says this. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So a lot of interesting stuff here. First of all, it's clear that Daniel believed the Messiah was God. Now here's how we know that. We know it because of what we hear Nebuchadnezzar and Darius say about this character who's going to receive a kingdom one day. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. Darius uses some of this exact language in the tract he sent throughout his kingdom. And so did Nebuchadnezzar. 
He used these terms. He used these ideas. And so it's clear, obviously, they had spoken to Daniel about his God and spoken to him about some of the visions he had. And when those kings wrote about this figure in the little gospel tracts they sent throughout their kingdom, the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, they said that he was the most high, the living God, the king of heaven who reigns forevermore. And so the Messiah cannot be some created being. He must be God himself. Now, second, it's worth noting how the Messiah receives his dominion. It's a very logical flow here, a very purposeful flow here. Daniel is writing about some fantastic things, these fantastic beasts and where God judges them, right? But it flows. He says, here's what happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. We're told that the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and then dominion and a kingdom is given to him, meaning that the people on earth do not give the dominion of the earth to the Son of Man. It's heaven that delivers dominion to the Son of Man. It's given from the throne of the Ancient of Days. Now, this is significant because in the way of thinking that is called post-millennialism, the kingdom will, quote, be brought on the earth by a long process of the preaching of the gospel with subsequent transformation of society. And so the idea is we, the people, we effectively prepare the kingdom for Jesus. We get everything ready and squared away for him, get the kingdom nice and dusted and the throne set up. And then Jesus can show up and we say, here you go. Here you get to have the dominion after all the work that we did for you. Well, that's not what's happening here at all. The problem is that view, and by extension, the amillennialist position that talks about us being in the kingdom now in some sense, these things not only don't line up with history, it doesn't line up with what you read in a passage like this. Just as four world empires, empires flowed in an order, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, so the coming of the Messiah will happen as described in Bible prophecy. At the culmination of human history, to defeat the Antichrist, the Messiah will show up, immediately destroy the Antichrist and his kingdom, and then establish a global kingdom that is just and real and just as literal as the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome have been. That's, that's the deal. The great difference is that the Lord's kingdom is everlasting. It shall not pass away. It cannot be destroyed. And we have been invited to not only become citizens of that kingdom, but to rule and reign with the Messiah who wants to include us in his wonderful inheritance. Those who hold to a post-millennial view or an amillennial view of the end times, hey, we love them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. No one's saying that they're not Christians or anything like that, but their positions simply don't jive with what the Bible says. It simply doesn't work in Bible prophecy. You read these visions of Daniel or the book of the Revelation, even a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, and you have to do all kinds of crazy gymnastics, all kinds of wild modification to come to these other conclusions where words no longer mean what words mean. And so if we're in the kingdom now, for example, then why are God's people still subject to death? Because Paul said once the kingdom is established, God's people are no longer subject to death. Revelation says that once the kingdom is established, Satan is bound why do the epistles talk about how we need to resist the devil so he will flee from us if we're in the kingdom now? 
If we're in the kingdom now, why doesn't every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Why hasn't God put an end to all rule and all authority and all power? If the church is meant to establish the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and that eventually the world will be Christianized to the point that Jesus says, yeah, it's good enough for me to come back now, well then, why does the Bible talk about a great apostasy of falling away from the faith before the coming of the Lord? It just doesn't make any sense. So we are given the broad strokes of God's plan in a variety of places in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of the details are, are still debatable or, or a question mark. We see things in all of these little passages where really good, solid, premillennialist, pre-tribulationist scholars are saying, hey, this is how we think you know, this is to be understood. And others say, well, it's a little bit more like this. And so in the fine points, sure, there's, there's discussion and there's debate and there's differences of understanding, but we're given the broad strokes. The Bible is very plain about what's coming and how it's coming. What we can be sure of is that God is going to win, his people are secure, and heaven is waiting for those of us who are in Christ. That's the deal. There's coming a future seven-year great tribulation on this earth, which will uh, follow after the rapture of the church at some point. There's nothing that stands between us and the rapture as far as biblical, biblical prophecy and the biblical calendar is concerned. We're waiting for that day. We're looking forward to that day. We're hopefully hastening that day. Then there's going to be seven years of great tribulation. At the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ is going to return. There's going to be the battle of Armageddon. The millennial kingdom is going to be established for a thousand years, and then we'll enter into eternity and be forever with the Lord. Now, the question might arise in our minds then, okay, well then what does this passage matter for me? What does Daniel 7 matter for me if I'm not even going to be around when the revived Roman Empire is on the earth? Well, of course, the general answer to that question is that, hey, God wants you to know these things. And prophecy is profitable for the gospel and for Christian living. But in a specific sense, we do have some points of application from our verses tonight. First of all, this vision shows us the kingdom of the beast and the kingdom of the Lord, right? Which one has issued your passport? You know, whose citizen are you? That's a question all of us need to ask or have an answer for. Can you say that you would be numbered among the 10,000 times 10,000 before the throne, gathered to worship and adore the God who saved you? If you can't say that, then according to this passage, the fire of God's judgment is going to consume you and your fate is going to be the same as the little horn. Now, if you're convinced I'm going to be safe in heaven, okay, that's great. What is that based upon? Because the Bible explains that the only way to be justified and saved from the wrath of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. We're not given access to heaven because we do charitable things or because we're not as bad as the guy standing next to me in line. Access to God's grace, access to heaven is by faith alone. Anyone who is willing can be numbered among that multitude in verse 10, but only those who confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead will be in that multitude. And the second point of application for us is this. What does your book say? We see these books opened. You've got a book. I've got a book. In fact, we've got a bunch of books that are being written in the library of heaven right now. It's somewhat scary to come to terms with the fact that the Bible says everything you do, everything you think, everything about your life every day is written down in the library of heaven. 
I remember back in 2010, there was big news. The Library of Congress decided they were going to archive every single tweet that was sent on Twitter, which means that I have a bunch of really stupid things stored in our nation's capital. Kind of embarrassed about that. They stopped doing it in 2017, by the way. I guess they realized this was stupid. Who cares? But you know, people talk about, hey, if you post it on the internet, it's there forever. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true in a sense. But this stuff is actually there forever. I mean, we're talking about your life being written down in heaven. Think about these heavenly books. Your life, your thoughts, your tears, your actions, your choices, your days are all being watched and recorded so that the Lord might reward you who are believers for what you've done. Now remember, we don't need to be afraid of this ancient of days. If we are one of his people, we can go boldly into his presence. We fear God in the sense that we love him and we want to honor him and we recognize who he is and what he's done for us, but we do not need to be afraid of our God. But we also re realize that, hey, this is a real thing. God is writing the book of your life. He's writing it down. What you did today, what I did today, got written down in heaven. And one day, those books are going to be opened. The record will be brought out. We'll stand before God himself, and we're going to give account. An account that so he can reward us, but an account all the same. Every biography has its own style and feel. Some are shorter. Others are thousands of pages. The difference is, in, in this human temporal life, people don't get the luxury of living in such a way in order to tell their story of, in their biography, right? If that makes sense. No one wakes up and says, you know, it's Wednesday. I need to do something so that in 50 years when my biography is written, we'll have a good chapter. Nobody does that. People look back in history and say, hey, that person's life was worth telling. And then the author goes through and researches and talks to people and studies the story and then writes it up, right? Now, the difference is we know our story is being written and we can choose accordingly. Daniel would advise us to fill our books with worship and service and faithfulness to our king. We can't wait to minister to the Ancient of Days when we're there before the throne. We're called to that life now and we are told exactly how to do it as we open up God's word, read what it says, and obey by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. 